From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles in Oregon. On 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM KSOW Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio on WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR Public Reality Radio. In Minneapolis. St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. This week, you have me, Angie Coiro, heard on many of these same stations, hosting In Deep with Angie Coiro, which is me. We've gotten circular here. Coming up this hour, Ari Berman on the encouraging reaction to Chris Kobach's demand for personal voter information. He leavens that with warnings on how dangerous that particular zealot is. David Atkins will look at single-payer on the federal level and derive some wisdom from what's happening with California's effort to do single-payer on its own. Journalist Jared Yates Sexton is getting death threats. Of course he is. He's the guy who uncovered the Redditor who created Donald Trump's CNN bashing video and the same Redditor's anti-Semitic attacks on journalists. This is all part of a much bigger picture, of course. The push for a journo cost, egged on by rhetoric from the White House, the GOP, and the NRA. All of those with the usual, skillful, plausible deniability, the who-me weasel words. Let's gather up some news first. Reactions are rolling into Donald Trump's traveling cringe-fest stopover in Poland. The government apparently fulfilled its reported promise to bus in enthusiastic applauders for the eternal candidate who misses election rallies so very much. And of course, he couldn't resist pointing out that he won the election because the fact that he was standing there costumed as the president of the United States apparently didn't make it obvious enough. Quote, the polls have not only greatly enriched this region, but Polish Americans have also greatly enriched the United States. And I was truly proud to have their support in the 2016 election. He just can't stop. And he could have ruptured something, contorting himself to work it in this time. It was hard to miss the inference when, Fuhrer style, Trump challenged the crowd as to whether the West has the will to survive and whether that will will triumph. I just made up that last part. Way to rally the troops, Donnie. Pictures are making the rounds featuring MAGA hats and at least one Confederate flag in that crowd in Poland. Now, I do not pretend to have vetted those. And we all know it's easy enough to Photoshop anything. But the sad part is, it is completely believable that Trump is attracting his us-versus-them bullying wherever he goes. He also said in opposition to U.S. intelligence agencies that nobody really knows if Russia tampered with the 2016 election. But if they did, it was Obama's fault for not reacting to intelligence reports sooner. So whether he respects and believes 
U.S. intelligence reports was kind of left up in the air. I guess it depends on if it's him or Obama. So let's round up some of the coverage. New York Times, quote, President Trump said on Thursday, Western civilization was at risk of decline, bringing a message about radical Islamic terrorism and the creep of government bureaucracy to the one European capital he views as most hospitable to his nationalist message. In what may be a foretaste of the scene in Hamburg, 12,000 protesters vowing to disrupt the summit meeting converged for a protest night called Welcome to Hell. Up to 100,000 protesters were expected in the coming days. Mr. Trump roused his Polish hosts by recounting the country's history of resistance to invaders, including Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. He said nothing about the right-wing government's crackdown on judges and journalists and its refusal to accept more migrants. He instead praised Poland as a defender of liberty in the face of existential threats. Meanwhile, opinionator Andrew Buncombe did not pull any punches over the independent, but he was fair. Headline, Emperor Trump visits Poland with no new clothes and is met with rapturous applause. It won't work at G20. His column, the crowds that cheered for Donald Trump in Warsaw's Krasinski Square, may have been specially bussed in, but that did not seem to bother him. As he spoke about Poland's history and its role in defending what he claimed was a threat to Western civilization, he repeatedly stopped to acknowledge cheers from the crowd. Thank you, he grinned, almost purring. Thank you. That word was purring in case I said it wrong. And in case anyone missed all the cheering and the chanting of his name, the White House made sure to include it in the transcript of his remarks. He's not Reagan, he's not Obama, but he is a better orator than his opponents would have it. At the G20, it will not be enough for him to simply make speeches, but he'll need to deliver. He'll be dealing with Angela Merkel, Xi Jinping, and Vladimir Putin. They're going to be a much tougher audience and the crowd that was cheering in the Polish sunshine. The emperor will certainly need new clothes. I'll give the last word to Mark Sumner at Daily Kos. Donald Trump's speech in Poland was designed to set up Islamic extremism as a vast existential threat to civilization, something that requires the West to demonstrate a will to survive as a willingness to pay any cost. It was also a speech heavily laden with themes of the party behind the Polish president, which has emphasized Poland's struggles to adopt an authoritarian, restrictive rule. The authors of the prompter-delivered speech made sure to hit notes that brought loud approval from the bust-in audience of Polish nationalists. He notes that the speech reserved a few sentences in which Trump could shake a gentle finger at Russia. No one in Moscow seems to be offended. Because not only did Trump's speech make it clear Russia was a sideline compared to the great clash of civilizations, providing justification for fearing immigrants, scorning the media, and generally waving away human rights, Trump's visit to Krasinski Square was only the second most important speech he delivered in Poland. Let's move over, shall we, to the increasingly endangered pastime of voting in America. New Jersey's Chris Kobach is having a blessedly hard time collecting personal information on voters in every state, including his own. Ari Berman finds that encouraging, but this is just one skirmish, he notes, in a much longer battle, including outright lies about voter fraud and oppressive voting laws flung at the legal wall one after another to see which ones will stick. And Kobach is very 
determined, one very determined guy. Here's my conversation with Ari. So to get an update on this, we're going to move on over to a regular guest of Brad's, and I'm very pleased to have him here. Ari Berman, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Angie. Good to talk to you. Well, we know that any number of states, especially even those, surprisingly enough, who are essentially Republican powerhouse states, are just saying no to everything that Chris Kobach wants in terms of private information. And it looks as though even his own state isn't allowed to turn over a lot of this information to him. That's on an individual state-by-state basis. Are we seeing anything from national representatives, be they in the House, be they in the Senate, that are openly fighting to pull back this request? So first off, just in terms of the states themselves, um, the latest tally that I have is that 45 states are refusing to give Kobach all of the data he's requesting. Now, there's a few different categories in that. According to my tally, 20 states are not giving him any information. They say they won't comply at all. And so Kobach's going to have to try to get that information some other way, or he won't get it at all. 25 states say they're going to give him some limited information on voters that's publicly available. Now, the big controversy here is that Kobach said he wanted publicly available information, and he listed all of these things it, like social security numbers, criminal history, uh, voting affiliation, military history that is not, in fact, public. And, right. in fact, Kobach could not provide social security numbers from Kansas because that is not public information here. So this, this doesn't seem to be very well thought out. Either he thought a lot of things were public that weren't public, or he was trying to trick states into giving him things that were not, in fact, public. But either way, uh, 45 states have said they're not going to give him all of this information. When it comes to Congress, there hasn't been much support for this. What I've seen so far is Representative Mark V.C., Democrat from Texas, introduced legislation to make sure that no taxpayer taxpayer funds are spent on this. And I think there'll be more bills like that coming in the next week or two. Now, with respect to the fact that you are a journalist and not a lawyer, I just want to say that you're yeah. not asking for a legal opinion from you. But from what you have read and observed, does he have the legal basis to request this? Is is this within the purview of the federal government? Well, there's a, there's a lawsuit right now that's looking at this very question. The uh, Electronic Privacy Information Center, otherwise known as EPIC, has filed a lawsuit against Kobach and the Trump basically saying that this this violates federal privacy laws and that he doesn't have the authority to get all this information, that this was supposed to be an advisory committee. And an advisory committee doesn't have the power to get all of this voter information from states. So this is going to play out in court uh, in the next little bit pretty soon. In terms of public opinion, I mean, I know that people who understand that the whole concept of all this voter fraud going on simply isn't documented, simply isn't defensible. But from a standpoint of what he and his advisory commission are allowed to do, is it relevant that his facts are essentially, alleged facts are essentially unsupportable? Does that have any bearing? Well, the the problem is that his alternative facts are Trump's alternative facts. And the, the whole reason that we have this commission is because President Trump lied that millions of people voted illegally. And Chris Kobach, as the vice chair, has been one of the only people willing to defend Trump's claim that millions of people voted illegally and has tried to manufacture all this evidence and support uh, 
of Trump, but hasn't really been able to find anything compelling. Um, so he was rewarded for defending Trump by becoming vice chair of this commission. But we were already seeing how potentially unpopular this commission will be. I mean, quite frankly, it's pretty extraordinary to see Republican secretaries of state from places like Mississippi, uh, Wyoming, uh, Louisiana, uh, Arizona uh, denounce uh, on this commission. I'm not saying they're going to disagree with him on everything. I think they're going to be in alignment on a lot of policy recommendations. But at least for the opening salvo, uh, this voter data request has totally disgraced this commission before they've even had a formal in-person meeting. Am I drawing too broad a conclusion that to look at what's happening between him and the governors of these states and see it as something of a reflection of the disarray of the Republican Party as a whole? Well, you know, what's interesting is that on the question of voter fraud, the Republicans have largely marched in lockstep. Um, There has been a lot of Republicans have spread um, really unfounded claims about voter fraud for a very long time. Uh, Most Republicans support things like strict voter ID laws, like proof of citizenship to register to vote, uh, these kind of things. But now there is disagreement, um, and there's disagreement um, because of federalism issues. There's disagreement because some people don't trust Trump. There's disagreement because some people don't trust Kobach. He's not a particularly well-liked guy among fellow Republicans outside of the Trump base. And so this is all coming to a head here, and I think a lot of Republicans have found uh, Donald Trump that millions of people voted illegally uh, to to undermine uh, the Republican Party to be a distraction. You've even had people like Mitch McConnell, who are very conservative and very partisan, say that there was no need for this commission. Um, so the commission itself was not very well received among Republicans, and certainly this latest data request was not very well received. We'll we'll see if um, this kind of opposition will will will. Uh, stay as it is. But the fact is, I mean, uh, Republican secretaries are hearing from their constituents on this, and that's what's driving it. A lot of voters don't want Donald Trump to have their personal information. And this public outcry is is what's led to all all these politicians distancing themselves from Kobach and Trump. Uh, Earlier this week, you appeared with Amy Goodman on Democracy Now! And she opened that segment with a number of soundbites from reporters and news analysts who were trying to pin him down on how inaccurate these reports, or at least how how unsupportable, unsubstantiated these reports of massive voter fraud are. And you can't help but admire the guy for the amount of tap dancing he can do. And, you know, if if I told you that, I'd have to kill you sort of level of rhetoric. And I'm wondering if you have seen whether this kind of tap dancing is receiving less respect from the voter voters as a whole, from the electorate as a whole. So, I mean, Kobach is really a master of alternative. Facts. He's been a master of alternative facts well before this commission. Uh, certainly now, uh, he can always find some expert, some piece of data that he can wildly extrapolate from to try to create these incredible statements that millions of people voted illegally. Um, so I'm used to this with Kobach. I tried to deconstruct uh, all of his rhetoric uh, in my New York Times Magazine profile of him, um, the man behind Trump's obsession with voter fraud. I really went into it deep. Um, in that piece, I think we're going to see what's what's happening here because you know he's not just vice chair of this commission, he's not just secretary of state of Kansas, he's running for governor of Kansas. So to me, that's number one a built-in conflict of interest because he's running for partisan office in Kansas. I think he should have had to quit this commission to be able to run for governor. But that aside, I think the voters are going to have a chance to weigh in. Uh, governor is is much more high profile than secretary of state. You know, it might 
Some of this is playing well in Kansas, but I also think there's this is a thing that that voters, to the extent they're paying attention, um, can understand that maybe they don't want the federal government uh, to have their Social Security number or to know who they voted for or to know whether they served in the military. Uh, and so people, number one, don't want to give the government this data, but number two, they don't trust the government with this data. They don't trust Chris Kobach with this data. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see how this plays out in Kansas because I think this could actually hurt him politically there as well. In fact, in that very article, you mentioned that the ACLU has four different lawsuits against Kobach since he was elected to his Kansas office in 2010. What's the status of those cases? The, the, the cases, uh, some of them have been resolved and some of them have been working their way through the court, but they, they all stem from the same thing which is the proof of citizenship law that Kansas put into effect. Beginning in 2013, Kansas became one of the first states to require documentary proof of citizenship to register to vote. So you need to show your birth certificate, your passport, or your naturalization papers to register there. And this has been very, very disruptive. One in seven people have been blocked from registering in Kansas because most people don't walk around with their birth certificate or their passport or their naturalization papers. In fact, a lot of people don't even have these documents to begin with. A passport, for example, costs $100, mm-hmm. which is a lot of money. You can't use your driver's license for proof of citizenship in Kansas. And so this is one step beyond uh, voter ID. And so the ACLU has sued Kobach a bunch of different times. This law and, and different sections of it have been invalidated, and now it's working through the courts. You know, I think one of the most persistent untruths that, that just won't go away is the idea that even if you keep it down to a simple driver's license, that still disenfranchises people. I, I can't, I don't see the lesson penetrating. There are multiple studies that show the disproportionate minority representation in those people who can't produce that simple document. But the fact is, most people have driver's licenses, so it doesn't seem to penetrate that, yes, that is an oppressive thing to do for a voter. Well, I think that's true. And it's always going to be hard to message against something that 90% of the public already have. Um, so, I mean, it's always it's, it's always going to be difficult for the 90% to understand the, the, the 10% who don't have these documents. But I think with the proof of citizenship law, it, it's well beyond that, that, you know, when one in seven people are blocked from registering, um, it's alarming. And a lot of people who have driver's licenses aren't able to register to vote in Kansas, uh, even with the documentation they have. And people are saying, are being sent letters saying, confirm that you're a U.S. citizen. And they think this is crazy. I mean, one of the people I write about in my New York Times Magazine article was a 91-year-old World War II vet who paid a poll tax in the 1940s. And when he moved back to Kansas, he went to re-register to vote, and he was told he wasn't a citizen because he didn't show proof of citizenship. And, I mean, this made this guy very, very mad, and he ended up suing Kobach. And so I think this law has really bordered uh, on the surreal, and the real-world ramifications of it have, have brought to home what a lot of these efforts are really about. It's interesting to see this play out against the background of the MAGA groups. And one of the reasons that they put Donald Trump in power was because they didn't trust the standard government. They don't trust big business. And they have a very strong, even even overbuilt sense of patriotism. And now, of course, they see what's happening with Kobach and Trump himself is disenfranchising veterans and, you know, making government even bigger. Well, and it's interesting because on Kobach's Twitter bio, 
it still says defending states <laughs> at a time at a time when uh, 45 states are rejecting uh, his request as vice chair of a presidential committee. And so everything's really been screwed up here. Um, and it just goes to show you so much of the rhetoric uh, of states' rights uh, among many Republicans um, ha- has just been, you know, purely political, um, that once they get into power, they it uh, as aggressively as they can. Um, and, you know, I've seen this show before. I've seen Kobach throw his weight around uh, many times. I've seen him be very, very sloppy. I've seen him make lots of unsupported uh, claims and accusations. And we're seeing all of this play out in 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 uh, many like it's like a it's like you know a drama in multiple acts and we're seeing it play <laughs> out um every day where you know there are lies about voter fraud there's incredible amount of suppression that i think he wants to achieve but there's also a lot of incompetence uh and a lot of sloppiness and and that gets both him and and trump in trouble Ari, one last question, and on this, it's it's a very general uh, impression of what's happening with voter issues on a macro scale for the average voter. I know that Brad has been on top of uh, voter issues for many years now. Uh, Your book on it is important. Your work on, you know, various media venues is important. But what level of penetration with the general population do you think this has as an issue? What kind of awareness are we looking at? Is it on the increase, the decrease? What are we looking at? Well, I mean, I think it needs to be in the increase. Uh, one thing that I found very disturbing was that the 2016 election was the first presidential election in 50 years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. But there were 26 presidential debates during the primaries of the general election in 2016, and there wasn't a single question about the gutting of the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. or about the attack on voting rights. So it clearly wasn't on many people's radar because the media just wasn't talking about it. They weren't asking the candidates about it. They didn't make it an issue. You know, every once in a while when there's an election catastrophe like in Florida in 2000 or when there's super long lines of the polls or something like that, people become aware of it. But, but otherwise, they just don't really pay attention to this stuff. Uh, um, and I, I think we need to see um, a lot more awareness about it. Uh, what I'm noting in you know in my coverage is that if you know a state passes a new voter ID law or something like that, nobody really cares. But if you connect it to Trump, then people start paying attention here because this was a Trump story because it involved the Trump administration, because Trump tweeted about it, because it, it, it was Republican states that were rebelling against the Trump administration. Then it became a story that the media could wrap their heads around and that people cared about. Ari Berman, his current article at The Nation is the Trump administration's voter suppression plans are backfiring badly. Currently at the New York Times.com, you can look for his article in the magazine, The Man Behind Trump's Voter Fraud Obsession. And of course, we heartily recommend his book, Give Us the Ballot, The Modern Struggle for Voting Rights in America. Ari, I know just how busy you are, and thank you for making time. Thanks so much, Angie. Good to talk to you. So there you go. The triumvirate at the head of the commission consists of Pence, Kobach, and wait, there's more. Heads up. Another determined soul has just joined the election commission. Newsweek raises the alert about Hans von Spankowski, who devoted, quote, the previous two decades to rooting out suspected voter fraud, even when scant evidence of such electoral malefaction existed. The story notes that at the Justice Department under George W. Bush, His work was nominally focused on voting rights, but in effect amounted to voter suppression. 
In 2006, it came out he'd used a pseudonym to publish law journal articles advocating for voter suppression laws. He clashed with Justice Department officials who objected to his plainly partisan inquests. Is this sounding familiar? They wrap up saying, Von Spakovsky is perfectly suited to a commission tasked with investigating imagined transgressions and reaching the dark, self-serving conclusion Trump plainly craves. Oh, something just in from the League of Women Voters. We'll get to that on the other side of this break. And on the other side of that, it's more on the fight for single payer with David Atkins. I'm Angie Quero. This is the Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com slash donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Quero. We're just about to get to California's fight over single payer. But as I was speaking, press release came in from the League of Women Voters. Check this out. Quote, we knew from the start the so-called Election Integrity Commission was created to justify President Trump's false claims of widespread voter fraud in the 2016 elections. Mr. Kobach's request for voter records is consistent with his tactics of voter suppression. Today, the White House openly admitted The commission intends to find fraudulent voters even where there are none. Obviously, this commission is fishing for fraud where there isn't any. Secretary Kobach has a history of suppressing voters and removing thousands of eligible voters from the rolls. He's been brought to court and lost several times for suppressing the constitutional rights of citizens to vote in his home state of Kansas. He's been sanctioned for deceptive conduct was fined by a federal magistrate judge judge for misleading the court. We've said it before, the press release wraps up. This commission is not interested in facts, but rather false accusations in order to implement dangerous election policy. And that's where we'll leave that. We're going to move over to California, a fight over single payer garnering national attention. And to some extent, it's a barometer of what can happen when a state considers going it alone instead of subjecting itself to whatever death plan comes out of the GOP. It does fail on that level, though, in that California has a maze of legislation peculiar to itself. And at the moment, the legislation to consider single payer is in limbo. And that gives us a good opportunity to see if there are any lessons to be extrapolated to the larger stage. And what's going on with the GOP's effort to throw millions off the insurance rolls 
or the latest feint to appease the vastly disapproving electorate, is the Cruz Amendment. Let's go over all this with California's Democratic Party Region 10 director and writer for the Washington Monthly, David Atkins. So the latest wrench in the works is the Cruz Amendments, another effort to try to make health care changes palatable to all of those who understand exactly what they're losing now under the proposed ever-changing Republican plan. We're going to get to the bottom of that, and we're going to find out, too, exactly what went down with the effort towards single payer in California. And for that, we move on over to David Atkins, his latest relevant column in the Washington Monthly, where he writes as one of the political animals, is the story behind the single-payer health care mess in California. And David Atkins is also California Democratic Party's Region 10 director. David, thanks for cutting out some time. Let's let's start things out in Washington, shall we, with the Cruz Amendment. What it's attempting to do and whether it is what it pretends to be. Can you give us the rundown there? Absolutely. Uh, Angie, happy to be here. Um, so the, the Ted Cruz Amendment basically allows healthy people to opt out of the comprehensive plans that the ACA requires. That sounds really good to free market advocates. It sounds really good to a bunch of potentially healthy people who say, I don't need all this coverage. I can get a cheaper bare bones plan. I think it'll be okay. Fingers crossed, assuming nothing happens to me. The problem with that is that Republicans seem not to understand what insurance is and how it works. Uh, They're so fundamentally opposed to anything that sounds socialistic in terms of we all pay in and some of us get out if we are – or some of us get that back, what we pay in if we happen to have something unfortunate happen to us that they don't understand that privatized insurance works on the same principle. A bunch of healthy people, in the case of health insurance, have to pay in, and you know, sick people and old people get that back out, and eventually the healthy people that pay in will get it back out when they get sick and old. And you know right. what? Maybe they get lucky. Maybe they never get it back out. But that's, and that's the way even private insurance works. So the Ted Cruz Amendment basically says, well, if you don't think you need coverage, if you're a healthy 25-year-old with no uh, conditions or whatever, then you know you don't have to have a comprehensive plan. The problem with that is that what will happen is all the healthy people, or many of them, will leave, and that will leave only the sick people and the old people in the pools, and then those pools will get dramatically more expensive and go into a death spiral it will basically crash the entire healthcare system. So uh, a bunch of Republicans are now coming out against the Ted Cruz. They're starting to realize this is the case. But the challenge for Republicans is that their some of their biggest, most conservative uh, third-party, or not third-party, but um, external organizations like Free Freedom Works and some of the other big conservative donor groups have come out heavily in favor of the Ted Cruz amendment. So this is causing even further division in their caucus. And what I don't understand is what the end game of the GOP is. And there are plenty of polls out that say exactly how well this is going over with the public. There was a wonderful kerfuffle on Twitter 
where the Indiana Republican Party put out a plea on Twitter for your Obamacare horror stories. And of course, it blew up in their face as though they'd never been on Twitter in their lives ever. And they got the horror stories of how bad it was before people could have coverage and how cases of breast cancer showing up and parents with you know tumors, whatever, were all taken care of and that the Obamacare being pulled away would be the Indiana horror story. So with this kind of thing happening again and again, you got to wonder what the GOP long game is. They know this is not popular, so why do they keep doing it? Um, because of the tax cuts. Uh, Republicans don't really care that much about health care policy. They never have. It's never been very interesting to them. And in part because of the same reason they're not interested in climate change policy. Fundamentally, Healthcare doesn't have conservative solutions. There is no system in the world that works on a purely uh, free market healthcare basis without government intervention. I'm not going to go into all the economic philosophy why, but fundamentally, it's not a um, it's not a marketplace, and it's not something you can solve by a marketplace uh, situation because people can't go in and shop when they get sick. Mm-hmm. Um, Climate change is the same way, right? Uh, the market works by punishing, it, by basically responding to information quickly and people punish uh, companies if they don't do the right thing. The market is not set up to handle effects that take 50 years. So conservative, there is no conservative solution to this. They're not interested in health care. It, it goes against all of their principles. So... But the reason they want to do this so badly is because they need those tax cuts. And they don't just need the tax cuts for the rich, for the ACA. Uh, they don't just want to get rid of the ACA tax cuts on the rich. They need to do this now to set up their next round of tax cuts for tax reform. Um, complex budget reconciliation issues that basically they need these tax cuts to set up the next tax cuts. So you're going to see them still push this very, very hard, even though it seems to be a very uphill and difficult losing battle. That, that having been said, it's also true that Republicans tend to act with some hubris. Uh, back in 2004, when Bush won the election, he thought he had political capital and moved to cut uh, or moved to privatize Social Security, and it backfired on him in a very big way in 2006. So this is also just a hubristic pattern for Republicans too. Mm-hmm. Let's talk from moving down from the federal to the state level. Uh, looking at California, there's there are a number of things that are very specific to the California political system that have to be taken into consideration when you try to pass single payer here. That may not be applicable to other states. Uh, we have a proposition system that, you know, once a prop has been passed into law, it's very hard to get it dislodged. In the case of Props 13 and 98, they dictate specific behaviors around spending that don't apply in other states. But if you were to look at the effort to pass single payer in California, which hit one of those bumps and at the moment is kind of in limbo, what from California is applicable to other states that they can learn by watching what's happening here? If the states decide to go solo, say single payer is not going to come from the feds, we're going to try to do it here. Do any of those lessons transfer to a national level? Some of them do, some of them don't. California is very unique in its own way. But um, one, the one big lesson is that this is a very expensive proposition. It requires a lot of uh, federal funding currently uh, to make it work. 
you would need to get exemptions uh, and waivers for uh, Medicaid uh, money, which a Republican administration would probably not be willing to grant. Mm -hmm. So that's one challenge. Now, you know, single payer is going to cost less, both to the state and to the taxpayer slash health insurance buyer over time. That's one of the key advantages, right, is that is that it is less expensive and delivers better care. But, uh, you know, a progressive needs to understand and, and have caution that even though it will cost the average consumer less, their taxes will go up. There's no other way to, to deal with it because this is a very expensive proposition. Mm -hmm. uh, your taxes will go up less than you pay out in insurance premiums, but your taxes will go up. And as you know, in America... Raising taxes is a dicey proposition politically. So this as is putting it mildly, list. yeah, that's the third rail. Yeah, and, and if you don't get, and one of the ways to keep it a little less expensive is to take uh, waivers from for the grants that the federal government gives you for Medicaid and uh, Medicare to put everyone into the system. Uh, or at the very least, Medicaid, different ways of working it. But if, the, if a Republican administration federally um, refuses to grant those waivers, then your lift is even bigger. So that's why the effort in Vermont uh, went down, is they couldn't figure out how to fund it um, in, in a way that worked out. And that's going to be the political challenge going forward, which is part of why, even though it seems an almost impossible Herculean task, it's kind of easier to try to do this at the federal level from a logistical standpoint. From a political standpoint, obviously, uh, that's a much different proposition. Um, so states are going to keep trying to do this, uh, but it's going to take a big progressive push in terms of messaging to say, hey, yeah, your taxes are going to go up, but this is still going to be better for everyone in the long run. In terms of California, California's effort has some very specific challenges to California that make it monstrously difficult. Well, I, I may be throwing a curve at you that's kind of out of your purview. And just tell me if, if I am. But I, I'm thinking about the New York Times think piece that came out the other day about how disenfranchised people in California's rural areas feel. You know, the, the pro-gun folks, the, the farmers, et cetera, who feel like they're being pushed around by the urban areas. If you look at support for health care reform and single payer throughout California, do we have any indication that that might be something that unites that far span between the very blue and the very red, even in a place as large and diverse as California? You know, it might. But I think what we saw from and I think that generally speaking, economic populism can win back a, a number of these voters, not most of them, but some of them uh, by you know, focusing their attention on the Wall Street crooks who actually are destroying their communities as opposed to uh, the immigrants that are getting the blame. But as we saw from the Obamacare fight, I, I think you'll find that when Republicans uh, play up the tax angle, that that will you know, mobilize rural conservatives against whatever effort happens. I mean, you have to remember what's going on, say, in Kansas or Oklahoma or Southern Oregon. Um, a lot of these rural conservatives, this isn't, a, this isn't just a pushback against urban liberals or minorities or what have you. I mean, they're refusing to even fund their own schools and police departments. A lot of this is just an authentic 
anti-tax ideology, anti-government services ideology. That so it's it's going to be a challenge. There's so so much to this picture, and it's so entangled. And I think you helped us get some disentangling going on here, David. Thank you for the help. I appreciate it. Oh, of course. David Atkins, you can find him writing in the political animal columns at Washington Monthly. The story that ticked this all off, that the story that sparked this all off, is the story behind single payer health care mess in California. You can check all of that out at the Washington Monthly. He's also the California Democratic Party's Region 10 director. Up next, what happens when the internet finds out you are the guy who unearthed the guy who created the CNN Trump video and discovered. That guy is also the creator of anti-Jewish memes. Hint, death threats. Of course, it's 2017, death threats. I'm Angie Coiro. This is the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. You're listening to the broadcast. I'm Angie Claro, in for the vacationing Brad and Desi. So we talked the other day about the CNN quote-unquote blackmail story, which has already begun to fade out because there's always a new pseudo-reason for the right-wing blogosphere to fan the flames of hatred and give us mass attacks on journalists. This one has a little bit of sticking power, though, not against CNN per se, because that's a daily target and something new will come up. But in this case, against independent journalist Jared Yates Sexton, he filled out the story of the video doctored up to show a stand in for CNN being tackled to the ground by a victorious Donald Trump. Yates Sexton found that the same Redditor who produced anti-Semitic material including a photo mashup of CNN employees embellished with the stars of David, was the one behind that video. So now, having been judged guilty of journalism, Jared Yates Sexton faces the predictable backlash, stalking, and death threats. I talked to him earlier today. So we're going to focus on the aftermath of what we talked about the other day, the CNN blackmail tag and, and how inaccurate the depiction of the story has been from the right. But unfortunately, when we say the right, we often jump right from there to death threats. This was sort of inevitable. So we go on over to Political Magazine and the author Jared Yates Sexton. We'll talk at the end of this segment about his forthcoming book. But here we have, and this is for the sake of broadcast, we're going to refer to the Redditor, Redditor as Hannes Hosolo. And the article is, I found Hannes Hosolo's anti-Semitic posts, then the death threats started. And boy, Jared Sexton, we've heard this one Way too often, same old song and dance. You're getting death threats because you're the guy who found the man who created the CNN Trump meme and apparently had little stars on all of the reporters' pictures from CNN. How did you find that? Uh, To be honest, it wasn't that hard. Um, Once somebody had said that um, there was somebody taking credit for the the wrestling meme that uh, the president tweeted, 
Uh, all I had to do was look on the Reddit, find the person. And it was actually on the second page of his submissions. It wasn't hidden. It wasn't really um, hard to find at all. It only took a couple of minutes. And it was quite obvious that uh, the president's staff had either not vetted the person who made this or they didn't care that it was full of um, racist and misogynistic memes. Yeah, that seems to be a thread throughout a lot of the Trump administration. In fact, you know, I don't know if you heard some of his statements from Poland today, but one of what I consider to be one of those pointed, you can read it either, either way statements, was whether the West has the will to survive. And and again, I hear that subtext of us versus them. And for some reason, that has really found a lot of resonance in the anti-Semitic community. What kind of signaling might they be getting from the president? Or do you think it's fair to say they're getting it directly from him, that this is not only appropriate, but welcome? I'll be honest. Um, I, I, I think the better uh, parts of me wanted to believe, you know, that some of this stuff is just on accident. Um, actually, um uh, the day that he posted that meme was the one year anniversary. You might remember of the Hillary Clinton meme with her in front of piles of money with a, a star of David next to her. Um, but when I heard that speech today, um, I, I heard the same thing as you. I heard this talk about Western culture. I heard about ancient heroes and whoever wrote that speech and whoever is behind this type of thought. I mean, that's dog whistling to white supremacists and white nationalists who believe that they are fighting for white Western culture. And the language that was on display today certainly seemed to be um, a callback to that in, in a really frightening kind of way. Well, let's talk about your own experience. Once you got that Star of David coverage out there, and I'm glad you noted that anniversary because, of course, Donald Trump said at the time of the Hillary Clinton meme, that was a badge. That was, not, that was not a Star of David. That was a badge. And I think at least we've gotten past that. So when did this fallout start coming down on your head? It was almost immediately. Before the hour was up, um, I started being told that I was going to be killed in the next civil war, which is uh, a topic that a lot of these uh, white supremacists are now talking about, which would actually be another thing that they call the journo cost, is a, a period in time in which they envision in the near future they'll be able to kill uh, journalists uh, without any legal ramifications. Um, but within the hour, I started receiving these threats in that regard. And then uh, once that happened, there were all sorts of memes that started being made that were about killing you know, helicopters, about shooting me. And then I started to find some of the um, darker parts of the Internet, I guess you would call it, where these fantasies were just right out in the open. And they admitted openly that um, they had this fantasy about killing journalists and, and how they would do it. They've written stories about it. They've they've pictured it. They have it in gruesome detail. And uh, and that was only within a couple hours. And it only got worse from there. We hear a lot about how social media, established social media like Twitter and Facebook, really don't react fast enough or thoroughly enough to this kind of activity. How much of what you've been receiving comes through those established venues? Uh, a lot of it. Um, you know, there's a lot through email. Actually, uh, within the past hour, I've started receiving phone calls um, that are harassing in nature. Um, and those are a little bit different. Law enforcement takes those seriously, but there's a, a, a real lack of uh, focus that law enforcement has on this online, particularly social media harassment. I mean, they're, they're really behind 
um, in years on this thing. And, and Twitter and Facebook are very lax to step in and do anything about it. Um, I've been told in no uncertain terms that somebody wanted to murder me, and Twitter has said that they saw nothing wrong with the post. Um, so it, it's actually a really unregulated um, area, and, and a lot of this just festers because of that. It was interesting to me that in your article in Politico, you tied a lot of this to the Turner Diaries. Can you go into that connection? Sure. Uh, the Turner Diaries is a 1978 novel, I believe, written by a man named William Pierce. And uh, basically, this was a uh, futuristic, and by futuristic, I mean near future, it'd be around now, uh, a, a time where white supremacists raise up and finally start a race war in this country. And in doing so, they basically kill every journalist they find, they get rid of liberals, um, they kill and deport all minorities, and eventually take over the world. Um, it's a really grisly, disgusting book, and it's held by a lot of these white supremacists as, as something of a Bible of, or a holy book that is something to aspire to. Back to the idea of connecting all the dots here, amongst the other things happening in the background while your story was developing, was it a commercial that came out from the NRA, actually a recruitment video that came out from the NRA. And as the Washington Post put it, that recruitment video even upsets the gun owners. Uh, the voiceover is they use their media to assassinate real news. They use their schools to teach children their president is another Hitler. They use their movie stars and singers and comedy shows and award shows to repeat their narrative over and over. And they call for fighting with fists. I'm starting to see this coalescing of various groups that are approved by the right and funded by the right starting to really deal in the rhetoric of violence. So it's not just 4chan on the far end of the spectrum. It's, quote unquote, respected groups. It's all over the place, and it's respected and not respected. The NRA's ad um, is incredibly irresponsible, and, and not only over the top, but you can tell what they're going for. They're cashing in on a lot of this right-wing rage and paranoia. Um, but I've also started to notice, in, in the, especially in the past few weeks, it's these other corners where these people are getting their news. They've bypassed Fox News. They've bypassed CNN. They are now getting their news from uh, directly from Donald Trump and places like InfoWars and Breitbart. And what you're starting to see from these groups is you're starting to hear journalists and liberals called subhuman. They're called devil worshipers and pedophiles. And there's a lot of rhetoric. It all comes down, of course, to the, the words that are being chosen. We're talking about crushing them. We're talking about stomping them, assassinating. There's all this talk. And then meanwhile, the idea is that the left is dangerous and that they're going to come for you. So basically any violence that you might take out on them is actually a matter of self-protection. And that's the rhetoric that we're starting to see in these last couple of weeks that it is definitely heating up. I don't want to go into what you're personally doing to protect yourself for obvious reasons, but I do want to know how many of these threats that you're getting and how many of the threats that you see that are aimed at other people who tweet, at feminists, at authors, what, what percentage, to what extent do you think those need to be taken seriously, not in terms as a signal of what's happening socially? I mean, they all need to be taken seriously to that effect, but in terms of what could actually happen, do you have any idea how realistic the threats are? It would be really hard to put a number on that. I mean, when I've, I've been looking at the, the Trump phenomenon for the last year and a half, really, and I actually started receiving threats after this reporting on the campaign trail, and I started having some people who would try and break into my house, who would circle my house, pull into my driveway, things like that. 
Um, I think it's a very small number who would actually act upon this, but I do know that the more that this rhetoric finds its way into mainstream America, I, I think there are going to be people who hear this, who believe it, who swallow it, and, and could very well act upon it. I mean, we're, we're, living in, um, we're living in a time where our dialogue is so poisoned and so heightened that we see these people who act out on, on this stuff. And I, I even would point to the guy who shot in, uh, in Virginia the other day with the uh, GOP congressman. The, there are people who are susceptible to hearing this message and believing it. Um, I would be afraid to put a number on it. Mm-hmm. I would say it's a lot higher than a lot of people would want to believe. Wow. Uh, let me ask about the stories that followed the original outing of who this guy was. There was a lot of distortion of how CNN handled the story, about in what order things happened, about who this person actually was. He was depicted by the right as a 15-year-old teenager. And, and again, I might be asking you to quantify the unquantifiable, but how much of this do you see as deliberately manipulating a situation and just plain bad news intelligence, just plain believing stuff that's not believable. It's incredible. Um, I've actually seen outlets, that, and, and I've actually had to deal with this in the past couple of days because a lot of people have read these stories and they've conflated my part in this story with CNN. So I've had a lot of people who now believe I work for CNN. And in fact, I've never been on CNN, never appeared on CNN. But these outlets are definitely putting these narratives together and distorting what's actually happened. And it's starting from the top. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but Donald Trump Jr. himself uh, tweeted about this, about harassing a 15-year-old when it had already been reported that this was a middle-aged, grown man. Um, and so that is obviously a willful distortion. But it's also in an echo chamber where one part says it, another part believes it, and it just proves itself. Uh, so, so we are watching a distortion, but we're watching a, a willful strategy from a lot of these people. And, of course, the irony is the apology that came out. Either the man is the world's best stage writer putting dialogue in some artificial person's mouth, or we were looking at one of those rare things, an authentic apology for someone who examined himself and found his own behavior wanting. And that's kind of getting lost in the shuffle with, you know, no less than the president's son getting involved to spread the lies. It's too bad that this apology is getting very little attention. Yeah, this apology is an interesting thing. Um, I'm a professor of writing, so I actually read over it. And I was like, this is a person who obviously has talent with words. And and obviously, um, if you believe the apology, this is a person who sort of wanted to express themselves via these offensive memes and ideas, which I think actually underlies the bigger problem here, which is, a lot of people who maybe are frustrated or maybe maybe not well, and they're uh, swallowing these forums and this rhetoric and this stuff, and it's it's actually corrosive. It leads to worse situations, and, and I think that we're looking at what is essentially a radicalization of of people like this poster. Who, um, who then not only believe it or buy into it, but they actually feed back into it, and, and it just continues and propagates itself. I really appreciate your time. I wish we had some solutions to offer, but at least we're getting the problem out there. Thank you so much. Hey, thank you. Jared Yates Sexton, you've seen his writing in the New York Times, the New Republic, and he's got a book coming out in September 2017, The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters Upon Your Shore. A story of American rage. Can't wait for that. We'll talk to you then, Tara. Thanks. We got time for one more note today. 
about the bizarre regression of our government to a nastier, more oppressive time. Did you know that women are barred from Congress if they're wearing sleeveless blouses or dresses or open-toed shoes? And this applies even in the murky, musky, horrible heat of the summer and fall. Now, this apparently falls under the heading of proper business attire, but if you're paying attention, it's different rules for girls. Business attire for women has included dresses and sleeveless blouses for a very long time now, to wit, the government's daughter, Ivanka, who wears sleeveless dresses all the time. However, CBS reports that this arcane tidbit has now been used to bar a woman reporter from the Speaker's lobby outside the House chamber. Quote from the story. Forced to improvise, she ripped out pages from her notebook and stuffed them into her dress's shoulder openings to create sleeves, witnesses said. An officer tasked with enforcing rules in the Speaker's lobby said her creative concoction still was not acceptable. These rules are far from clear-cut. There are no visible signs defining them. They're also not enforced on the Senate side of the Capitol. Paging Gloria Allred. And that's a wrap on the Bradcast. I've got one more show with you. Then it's the return of Brad and Desi. Until then, with increasing fervor, good luck, world. Good luck, world.